Hello, everyone. Season's greetings. My name is Stephen Tomlinson. I'm a librarian here at the Code St. Luke Public Library. Welcome to this, the story of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, in which I will be talking a little about the movie's history, legacy, and continued significance. Undervalued upon its initial release, It's a Wonderful Life, the small-town Hollywood drama with Jimmy Stewart, was rush-released by RKO Radio Pictures for Oscar consideration almost exactly 74 years ago today. The movie has long been a reassuring seasonal favorite, and I'll be discussing how that came about, especially in the context of its tearful affirmation of life, which of course is laced with some darker emotions and very hard truths about the world. I'm sure that you've seen the film, at least everyone seemingly has. Recall that it's the holidays, snow is falling, and Jimmy Stewart's George Bailey, a community savings and loans manager in the fictional town of Bedford Falls, is down on his luck. Driven to despair by financial misfortune and contemplating an end to things. But those who know director Frank Capra's classic film only by its reputation as a sentimental seasonal favorite are often taken aback by just how unflinchingly it shows the ever-amiable Stewart's character brought low by the workings of a cruel world. True, the story does involve a certain angelic intervention to show him that his, that his, that his life has been worthwhile and that the lives of the people around him would be much worse if he were dead. Yet it's only because this modern parable plums the depths so vividly that its vision of redemption proves so persuasive and genuinely heartfelt in the end. The film's enduring popularity may indeed derive from Capra's insistence that friendship, family and love, all matter far more than material gain which is, especially during the holidays, a telling message of solace in a secular, money-driven society. An adaptation of Philip Van Doren's short story, The Greatest Gift, Frank Capra's movie has indeed managed to cement itself as part of the holiday zeitgeist. Despite Capra himself admitting in a 1984 interview, I didn't even think of it as such a story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. Near the end of World War II, with his career as a military documentary filmmaker about to be over, Frank Capra, once one of the most bankable filmmakers in Hollywood, the director of It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and other great films from the 1930s, now met with a lack of enthusiasm for his services at the major studios in Hollywood. Some of this stemmed from his reputation for spending too much money in the past on his pictures, but also from Capra's public criticism of war films made during the war that he felt were embarrassing to the actual troops who had seen combat. So alienated did he feel from Hollywood that Capra considered moving to England to pursue commercial film directing, where he had made many connections during his work for the Army Signal Corps. His situation was like that of many other 1930s film veterans who had spent the war years in the service, only to discover after it that they no longer had the clout that they once had, and so were now scrambling to form their own independent production companies. 
And this is exactly what Frank Capra did, along with Sam, Samuel Briskin, the former second-in-command at Columbia, where under Harry Cohn's stewardship, Capra had been a contract director throughout the 1930s. Briskin was an old friend, and an independent company seemed a good way to resume Capra's creative work, in a way that bypassed the studio controls that had always irked him in the past at Columbia. Eventually, the two men enlisted film directors William Wyler and George Stevens in their scheme, announcing Liberty Films on January 29, 1945, and incorporating the company in April of that year. But both Wyler and Stevens had previous commitments to take care of, so it was up to Frank Capra to get the first Liberty Pictures production off the ground. He pursued development on a number of projects before settling on the Philip Van Doren Stern short story, The Greatest Gift. Stern had originally written it in 1939, but after spending several years trying to sell his story to publishers with no success, Stern, whose father was Jewish, by the way, self-published his work and sent it to 200 friends as a 21-page Christmas card in 1943. Stern's daughter, Marguerite, once recalled, and I quote here, I was in the third grade and remember delivering a few of these cards to my teachers and my friends. My father, who was himself from a mixed religious background, explained to me that while this story takes place at Christmas time, and that we were sending it as a Christmas card to our friends, it is a universal story for all people in all times. Quote, unquote. And indeed, it is that very universality that Capra would tap into in making his film adaptation of it. But Capra was then unaware of this. Sometime in late 1943 or early 1944, the story first came to the attention of either Cary Grant directly or RKO producer David Hempstead, who showed it to Grant's agent. In April 1944, RKO Pictures bought the rights to the story for $10,000 hoping to turn it into a star vehicle for Cary Grant. But only more than a year later, in September 1945, did RKO announce it as a future film that would feature both Grant and Gary Cooper. Now, looking back, it's easy to see Grant in the role of George Bailey. At least I think it is. But how Cooper might have fit into this film is not so clear. Would it have been in the role of Clarence, maybe, the guardian angel? It seems unlikely. For such a forthright leading man, and in any case, it's now impossible to imagine anyone other than Henry Travers in the role. But whatever the case, it was from RKO, which had the distribution rights on movies produced by Liberty Films, that Capra got the right to create his treatment of the story. In the meantime, Stern finally found a publisher, and the story ran in Good Housekeeping magazine in late 1945, retitled as The Man Who Never Was. By the way, some of the other projects that Capra had in development at this time included an early working of the invisible six-foot rabbit theater piece, Harvey, which became the film of the same title, with James Stewart just a few years later, but under Henry Coster's direction, not Capra's. He also sketched out a treatment for a Western that Capra hoped to have Gary Cooper for, in which a lone cowboy is saddled with the responsibility of guarding a wagon train of 500 mail-order brides to California. <laughs> Imagine the possibilities. I mean, they seem endless. But it was It's a Wonderful Life that Capra went ahead with. 
In the spring of 1946, Bank of America put forward the initial financing for the film with $1.54 million for its budget. The final budget would hit $3.78 million, the most costly film Frank Capra would ever make, but a relatively paltry sum, even when inflation adjusted, when compared with the blockbuster filmmaking model of our own time, in which movies might cost anywhere from $200 to $300 million to produce, advertise, and distribute. The screenplay for It's a Wonderful Life would eventually pass through nine writers. Dalton Trumbo, later of the so-called Hollywood Ten, was the first to adapt it before Capra's involvement, with his George Bailey being an idealistic but failed politician who slowly grows more cynical after losing an election. In Trumbo's early treatment, the angel shows him Bedford Falls not as it would be if he had never been born, but if he had gone into business instead of politics. After Trumbo, the script was passed on to Clifford Odets, the great New York playwright, and then to Hollywood veteran Mark Connolly for rewrites. rewrites excuse me. As Capra's new production company, Liberty Films, had a nine-film distribution agreement with RKO, studio chief Charles Corner urged Capra to read the script of The Greatest Gift, as the future movie was still called. Capra immediately saw its potential and purchased the project for $50,000 from RKO. He then hired Frances Goodrich and her partner, Albert Hackett, to rework the existing script into something more closely resembling what we have today. Capra also brought in Michael Wilson and Dorothy Parker, yes, that Dorothy Parker, for dialogue work, as well as Joe Swirling. In Joseph McBride's book on Capra, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, Joe Swirling is estimated to have redone a quarter of the script. But in the end, and not untypically of Hollywood, only three people through the Screenwriters Arbitration Committee received actual writing credits on the film. Capra himself, Goodrich, and Hackett, with additional scenes, quote-unquote, by Joe Swirling. Somewhere during all of this, Cary Grant dropped out of the project eventually making The Bishop's Wife instead, and another big-name actor was introduced, Henry Fonda. But he was scheduled to work on John Ford's My Darling Clementine, which was to be filmed at the same time as Capra planned to shoot It's a Wonderful Life. So Fonda was out too. All of this may seem pretty strange to us, as it's impossible today, really, to imagine anyone other than Jimmy Stewart in the role of George Bailey. But that's history. And it's worth recalling that the distance in time between Capra's then most recent commercial feature, Arsenic and Old Lace, which he had shot in 1941, and the making five years later of It's a Wonderful Life in 1946, was huge. 1946 was an entirely different era, and much had changed over the years of World War II. In particular, much had changed as well for the film's eventual star, Jimmy Stewart, who once said, and I quote here, Frank Capra really saved my career. I don't know whether I would have made it after the war if it hadn't been for Frank. It wasn't just a case of picking up where you'd left off because it's not that kind of business. It was over four and a half years that I'd been completely away from anything that had to do with the movies. Then one day, Frank Capra called me and said he had an idea 
for a film. He said, now imagine this, you're in a small town and things aren't going very well. You begin to wish you'd never been born, and you decide to commit suicide by jumping off a bridge into the river. But an angel named Clarence comes down from heaven, and uh, Clarence hasn't won his wings yet. He comes down to save you when you jump into the river, but but Clarence can't swim, so you save him. (laughs) Then Frank stopped and said, you know, this story doesn't really tell very well, does it? And I just responded, Frank, If you want me to do a movie about me committing suicide with an angel with no wings named Clarence, I'm your boy. Quote, unquote. (laughs) Stewart, of course, and I'm sorry I wasn't able to do that in a um, a uniquely Jimmy Stewart type accent. Stewart, of course, had every reason to have faith in Frank Capra as they had had previously collaborated on You Can't Take It With You from 1938, which was the best picture winner of that year. Uh, as well as Mr. Smith Goes to Washington the following year in 1939, both great films, of course. Now, for the role of Mary, Jimmy Stewart's wife in the film, Jean Arthur, Olivia de Havilland, and Dvorak, and Ginger Rogers were all said to be in the running for the part, but all ultimately passed on the film, either because of prior commitments or because they considered the character to be just too bland at least in the words of Ginger Rogers. Donna Reed, an actress who would go on to become a huge star on television, of course, ultimately secured the role. And incidentally, um, uh, she's viewed in the film (laughs) as a librarian, uh, at least in the um, alternate universe in which Jimmy Stewart is um, shown had he never existed. One of the most significant librarian roles in the history of movies. Oh, and by the way, both Jimmy Stewart, um, who was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Donna Reed, who herself um, was from Denison, Iowa, they both came from small towns. So that's something distinctly well-chosen about them, their small-town background. Stewart's father ran a small hardware store where son Jimmy had worked for years. And Reed herself, um, she demonstrated her own rural roots by winning an impromptu bet with actor Lionel Barrymore, who, of course, plays Mr. Potter in the film, when he challenged her on set to milk a cow. A long list of actors had been considered for the role of Potter, including Edward Arnold, Charles Bickford, Edgar Buchanan, Louis Calhoun, Victor Jory, Raymond Massey, Thomas Mitchell, and even Vincent Price. But it was Lionel Barrymore who eventually won the role. And like everyone else in the cast, it's today nearly impossible to imagine otherwise. Almost certainly, not unrelatedly, Barrymore had been a famous Ebenezer Scrooge in radio dramatizations of A Christmas Carol around this time. And so he was a natural choice for this very similar Scrooge-like role. And incidentally, Barrymore had also worked with Capra and Stewart on the 1938 Best Picture Oscar winner, You Can't Take It With You. So it was almost a kind of um, reteaming, as it were, of of these three great um, Hollywood figures. 
Now, filming on It's a Wonderful Life started on April 15th, 1946, and it, it wrapped on July 27th, 1946, exactly on deadline for the 90-day principal photography schedule. And, you know, you'd think that given it's totally beloved by everyone's status, It's a Wonderful Life would have been embraced when released by both critics and the public alike. But such was not the case, not at all. In fact, the film received generally mixed reviews. And I'm not sure why this was the case. Perhaps it had something to do with a sense of pessimism present in much of the film, which may not have been appreciated coming just after the end of the war, uh, and which certainly has not been fully comprehended and accepted until decades later. Maybe it had something to do with um, It's a Wonderful Life being only one in a spate of bittersweet movies that appeared just after the end of the Second World War, including Stairway to Heaven, just to mention one. Or The Best Years of Our Lives, to mention another. And, and certainly if what I said about the pessimism present in It's a Wonderful Life, hampering its um, its initial reception, that certainly wasn't the case with the best years of our lives, right? I mean, both films tapped into um, what must have been many people's experience of loss, a loss of loved ones. And both films, of course, offer, in the end, a kind of consolation. Given that, you might think it would have been more eagerly embraced upon its initial release, but it was not. And why it was not, whereas Best Years of Our Lives was, I'm not exactly sure, except to say both are great films and both hold up very well today. It's a Wonderful Life did, however, garner five Academy Award nominations but one none. And was something of a box office flop, too, failing to recoup its $3.7 million cost, as it made only $3.3 million during its initial run. You know, out of the 400 films released in 1947, for a while It's a Wonderful Life was technically released on December 20th, 1946, in one theater, the Globe Theater in New York City, so that it could be considered for Academy Awards. It only went into general release on January 7th, 1947. And it only placed 26th in box office revenues for that year. A rather grave failing for such a prestigious, A-budgeted movie with big-name stars. Time, of course, has been very kind to It's a Wonderful Life. Just as an example of how broadly the film has been embraced these days, uh, I mean, just a few years ago, in a poll taken by Britain's uh, Channel 4, it was voted as the seventh greatest film ever made. I, I, mean, I mean, and the movie scores, you know, similarly highly on uh, other such contemporary lists and endeavors. But ironically, as I meant to indicate earlier, it had been the film William Wyler had to make for Paramount before he could contribute anything at Liberty Films that knocked out It's a Wonderful Life and almost everything else in 1946-47 at the Academy Awards and almost 
and also made almost four times as much money at the box office as did Capra's film. Weiler's The Best Years of Our Lives was shot at the very same time as It's a Wonderful Life, and in fact there was a friendly competition between the two directors to see who could finish first. Now, as I suggested, the two films are, in their own ways, both time capsules of the immediate post-war era. Both are ultimately reassuring, though both show an undercurrent of trouble and unease within society. Weiler overtly shows this in the character played by Dana Andrews in his film, an Air Force bombardier who loses almost everything in his effort to fit back into American society. Whereas in It's a Wonderful Life, it is the fundamentally decent character played by Jimmy Stewart, who nearly loses everything as well. But characters, both characters recover through the help and, and sympathy of their friends and neighbors. Yet, only one of these films was considered a success in its day, the best years of our lives. Though both are outstanding movies. Yet in the long run, it is unarguably, it's a wonderful life that has had the greater impact and which is much more viewed today. But back in 1947, and in hawk for the cost of the film, Frank Capra and his partners were convinced that they had no choice financially except to seek association with a major Hollywood studio. So Liberty Films was sold as a subsidiary to Paramount Pictures, where Capra went on to direct State of the Union in 1948, and then dissolved entirely in 1951, which is when, significantly, the copyright to It's a Wonderful Life was bought by a TV packaging consortium. That may seem like a minor point, but it ultimately helps explain why a movie with such dark themes and which failed to perform at the box office became not just a perennial favorite, but widely considered the definitive holiday classic. It all comes down to a legal loophole. Of course, It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie, but greatness and a work's intrinsic merits are often not enough, as its initial release proved. The U.S. Copyright Act of 1909 gave a body of work an initial copyright term of 28 years. At the end of that first term, the copyright holder was permitted to apply for a second term of 28 years. But in 1974, at the end of its initial term of copyright, Republic Pictures, the original copyright owners of It's a Wonderful Life, failed to apply for that second term, most probably due to a clerical error. And the film as a result, fell into the public domain, which means a legal status whereby a particular film or television show without copyright protection can be broadcast by anyone without paying any licensing or royalty fees. And it was at this point that both American and Canadian television stations, who were always on the lookout for inexpensive content, picked it up and for almost two decades played it somewhat relentlessly over the festive holidays. And it was these repeated royalty-free broadcasts of the movie which, in addition to its intrinsic merits that took time for people to truly appreciate, which wove its a wonderful life into the fabric of our festive season. In 1984, 
Frank Capra told the Wall Street Journal, It's the damnedest thing, you know. I've never seen anything like this. The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I mean, I'm proud, but it's the kid who did all the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. End quote. <laughs> Things changed, though, in 1993. While the film itself had fallen out of copyright, the short story upon which it was based, The Greatest Gift, had not, and in fact was now owned by Republic Pictures. And following a landmark ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in a separate case three years earlier in 1990, which determined that only the copyright owner of a story has the right to exploit what are called derivative works, such as films, Republic gained control of the picture. Today, Paramount, which acquired Republic in 1998, controls the distribution of the movie. And for that reason, It's a Wonderful Life is not quite omnipresent as it once was on television. But while the film's days of festive season saturation may be over, thanks to those two last decades when the film was in the public domain, as well as its intrinsic merits that make it, in the words of one writer, and I quote here, the least religious but most humanist film that you could ever see, It's a Wonderful Life will, for many of us, remain forever a seasonal classic. But of course, as a seasonal classic, one of the things that signifies it as such is the part wintertime setting. And as Canadians, I'd like to think that we're well-versed in spotting fake snow in the movies, especially as It's a Wonderful Life was not filmed on location in some sleepy upstate New York town during the winter, but rather on a massive studio backlot in the San Fernando Valley during the middle of the summer. But that's the magic of the movies, right? Capra and his crew did not use your run-of-the-mill fake Hollywood snow. No, prior to It's a Wonderful Life, most productions had used cornflakes painted white to simulate snowflakes. But as you can imagine, this was a rather loud way to go about things. And the dialogue during snowy scenes was usually dubbed in during post-production due to actors stepping on crunchy snowflakes. But Capra had insisted on recording the sound live during the film's snow-filled scenes. So a new, less disruptive snow had to be made. And what they came up with was something derived from water, soap, and a firefighting chemical called fomite, which was pumped through a wind machine. A total of 6,000 gallons of this new fake snow solution was used in the film. And although It's a Wonderful Life may have performed poorly at the Academy Awards, as it had at the box office, at least the RKO effects department received a technical award from the Academy for its innovative development of fake snow. You know, people have often speculated about which real town the fictional Bedford Falls may have been based upon. Philip Van Doren Stern said himself in a 1946 interview that the town that he had in mind was one 
Califon, New Jersey, whereas Seneca, New York is the town that is most closely associated with the movie version. And it claims that, that, that honor today does Seneca in New York. But according to film historian Janine Bassinger, curator of the Frank Capra archives at Wesleyan University and author of the It's a Wonderful Life book, Capra himself always described and regarded Bedford Falls as an allegorical every town. You know, something little known about It's a Wonderful Life is that in addition to getting the thumbs down from many critics and filmgoers in the late 1940s, he'd also received an official mark of disapproval from the FBI, of all things, which pegged this ultimately poignant movie as, believe it or not, communist propaganda, thanks to its populist themes and, more specifically, unflattering portrayal of Lionel Barrymore's Scrooge-like banker, the most hated character in the film, and also for supposedly deliberately maligning the upper class, in the words of a 1947 FBI memo entitled Communist Infiltration of the Motion Picture Industry. Remember, Jimmy Stewart's George Bailey, the film's protagonist, is a small-time community bank manager. And seen from one perspective, his competition with aggressive tycoon Henry F. Potter, who runs the, the, the much bigger competing bank, tells a larger story about business and industry with each of these characters representing a different vision of both capitalism and democracy. A still quite relevant theme today. But during the early years of the Cold War, when communism was viewed as a dangerous competing ideology, even the idea of a community bank itself could be read as somewhat communist. And so too might George Bailey's deep unhappiness in a quintessentially American small-town life, for that matter. Remember also that It's a Wonderful Life received widespread release in 1947, which was really the beginning of both official and unofficial communist witch hunts in the United States and the resulting blacklists in Hollywood. And that, sent, that would send a shiver throughout Hollywood for more than 10 years. But despite this FBI accusation, Frank Capra and the film screenwriters, not including the uncredited Dalton Trumbo, unrelatedly, did not, for whatever reason, we do not know, get called to testify, nor were they blacklisted by Hollywood, as a result of official investigations into supposed communist influence in Hollywood filmmaking by the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, in Washington, D.C., during these later years of the 1940s. And so the film itself continued to be shown unimpeded. And Capra and the writers, aside from Trumbo and relatedly, were allowed to continue working on movies in Hollywood. Now, the FBI accusation is, in retrospect, of course, completely ridiculous. But it does put a significant finger on a certain darkness that is central to the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which may have registered negative, negatively excuse me, with those early audiences, but which can now be seen to lend weight to the complexity of real-life struggles and which ultimately give the film its highly poignant conclusion. That George Bailey, who of course is played by Jimmy Stewart, you know, that 
avatar of American Hollywood acting, you know, the, you know, this figure who embodies many of the characteristics of the quintessential American hero, that in playing this role, he, he adds weight to all of this, you know, thereby conveying both the ambiguities and ambivalences of the American dream. It's failures as well as its promises. So it's not like Stewart's George Bailey has simply woken up from a nightmare, remember? No, not at all. I think he's been shown the world as it truly exists, the truth of things, in his time, and also by extension in our own. And that is another reason why we embrace the film today. He just hadn't known it, the truth of things, because he was seeing the world through his eyes, not as it was necessarily, but as he was, honest, fair, and fundamentally decent. And because of his family and friends, without whom he would be nothing and nobody. That's why in the last scene of the movie, George looks at his friends with a mixture of both terror and love. I mean, he's happy to be alive, but he's reached a mature awareness as well and is now fully cognizant of the dark potential in the world, and by extension, in each of us. And it is that awareness that we too, in 2020, I think, are much more able to grasp. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this story of It's a Wonderful Life. You've been listening to Co-St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next week for more movie talk. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.